Everyone has a story to tell. About the bump of the night, the monster under their bed, or even the man they see in the rearview mirror window as they drive away. The only thing that separates everyone's stories are which ones are real and which are fake. Welcome to Two Spooks, One Lie. Hello, spooky friends. Welcome to Two Spooks, One Lie. I am Ash, and I'm here with Kat. Hi, guys. And Kat is going to be telling us three stories today, but the trick is one of them is fake, and I gotta guess it. Yeah, you all have to guess it, actually. Um, actually, it's just me. No, it's everyone. Sorry, I'm excluding our audience. That's kind of (laughs) rude. I'm a nice person, I swear. (laughs) But before we jump into that, we need to talk about last week's episode. I am so nervous for this. I listened to the episode again, and I was like, I think I guessed it wrong. Oh, well, I'll like, find out today. So to remind everyone, I told three stories of cemeteries that I've been to. And I did give one away, so everyone had a 50-50 shot. So I told the story of the miner. Yes. Who died in the mines. Yes. By the way, every time you say miner, I think of, like, a miner. Like Why would else. I? <laughs> I think it's because of true crime. You know, everyone's like, they were a minor at the time. I don't know. That's fair. So, but uh, I would just say a kid, a teenager. Yeah, I know. Anyway, guy who used pickaxe. <laughs> guy who used pickaxe. And then That's we fair. had the weeping woman. The weeping woman. And then we had Lily E. Gray, which was a real one that I gave away. Yeah. And which one did you guess, Kat? The minor. All right. Drum roll. Oh, I think I got it right, because Ash is actually getting up, guys. <laughs> Don't insult me. By the like way, that. I'm not gonna drum roll because last time that sounded very bad. I'm so sorry. sorry. I fucked up. Gosh, Ash is erasing. Guys, I'm so nervous. Ash is blocking my view. Still blocking my view. Look at the chalk away. Wow, you're so rude. <laughs> <laughs> Ash literally <laughs> pretended to erase it. It is still one. <laughs> The disrespect, guy. My cackle in the background. <laughs> you did get it wrong. No! The minor one I created, the weeping woman, is real. Really? I like how last time your reasoning was, I don't think you'd create a story about a minor, while the other one was, like, five children dying. So you think I'd create a story about five children dying? Yeah, I do think that. Well, plus the other one, it sounded so similar to, like, the Weeping Angels. Plus, I was, you had so many facts about mining, and I was like, Ash doesn't know anything about mining. Dude, I went hardcore doing my research about mining. (laughs) Shout out to my fiancé, though. He actually gave me the idea, so. Ryan! (laughs) (laughs) And we were, like, just chilling. He's like, you should do one about a miner. And I was like, oh, yes. So, here we go. Ryan, I'm coming for you. Well, let us know on our Instagram and Facebook if you got it right. And say fuck cat if you did. That is so weird. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I thought you tried to pin the audience against me. I know. At first I'm like, fuck the audience. And then the next second I'm like, fuck cat. I swear I'm a nice person. Pick a side, Ash. I'm on everybody's side and no one's side at the same time. Whoever can give me benefits, that's the side I'm on. So I don't give you benefits? Only sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And with that, I think you got three stories for us, right? Yes. So I'm just going to jump into our first story now. But bear with me. The story does take place in France. I probably will mispronounce things, but I will do my best. I would also like to point out Kat called me out earlier today, Kat. 
Kat was like, I didn't name any of my stories because Ash just gives them a different name every time. So yeah, that's like, true. The stories aren't named, so Ash and I will have to come up with a name at the end of the listen, story. Listen, it's easier for my dumb brain to understand 44 stab wounds versus whatever his name was. <laughs> that's fair. All right, Kat, so we're in France. We're in France. In March of 2016, a woman by the name of Valérie Bacot, I think that's how you pronounce it in French. Valérie. Valerie, okay. Bacot decided to take justice into her own hands. She was married to a 61-year-old named Daniel Pallet. Daniel Pallet was originally her mother's boyfriend Ugh. and Valerie's stepfather when he began Ugh. raping her. Uh, uh, oh my god. Yes, it starts a little rough. <laughs> she, wow, yeah, that was a lot of plot twists and turns, man. I yeah, know, it's crazy. It was like, okay, ew, boyfriend, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, it's like, ew, she's 40, he's 61. Oh wait, he used to be her stepfather. Oh wait, he sexually assaulted her. Yeah, that's, whew, okay, keep going. She was 40 years old in March of 2016, but when the abuse started, she was only 12 years old. Oh, my God. Her alcoholic mother and her absent father divorced, and eventually her stepfather, Daniel Pallet, was welcomed into their family by her mother. The first time he raped her, she was too young to understand what was going on. She didn't even fully understand what had happened to her until after a school biology lesson. Ah, that's so horrible, because it's in a lot of cases that's the case is the child is misled or not properly educated and that's how predators can i think it's part of why it's important to talk about it so children know when it happens to them because a lot of times they're too young that they don't even know so of course they don't tell anyone right because then the predator especially if it's someone they trust like someone who's supposed to be your stepfather (laughs) and also predators will take advantage of that and tell them it's just a game or just a secret game between us and if you don't tell your children the proper names for body parts that can also be used against them. So it's just, it's horrible that she had to learn in school, like, oh, yeah. this is what happened. Yeah, seriously. In 1995, he was even convicted and imprisoned for three years for assaulting her. Only three years? Yes. And while he was in prison, her mother would bring Valerie to visit him. Are you... She would later say that she was naive at the time and she believed he could be forgiven and that he could be granted a second chance. Yeah, a second chance after sexually assaulting a kid. (laughs) After his incarceration, he was allowed back into the family home and nobody even seemed to question it. Are you pulling my leg right now? I am not pulling your leg. Well, actually, I might be. That's the whole whole podcast. Because in America, that's like not allowed, right? Well, nine times out of ten, they won't allow the abuser or the sex offender to go back into the home. Yeah, and normally there are very strict, like, regulations on, like, they're not even allowed within a certain amount of distance of a school or children or parks even. Right. So, yeah, it is crazy. It is, wow, that's just, as, like, a mother, too. I mean, I I, I don't want to blame the mother because who knows what was going through her mind or Mm -hmm. who knows if he had manipulated her into the situation. But that is just, that's sad. It's really sad. Um, he even promised Valerie's mother that he wouldn't continue abusing her, but of course this was a lie. The rapes continued, and when Valerie was 17 years old, she became pregnant with his child. Oh my god. Yeah, it's 17. 17 pregnant with your stepfather's child. Yeah. And the, he must have manipulated the mom into trusting him, and that's just, ah, oh, this bastard. Her mother kicked Valerie out. Wait, what? Yeah. I was giving the mom the benefit of the doubt. Well, she was not happy when she became pregnant with um, Daniel's kid. So and she, she didn't kicked blame her out. She didn't blame Daniel, she blamed the victim. 
Yeah. Cat. I don't like this story. Valerie wanted to keep her child, but she didn't have a lot of options left. Daniel Paulette arranged to move them into a flat together, which is basically an apartment in England, as husband and wife. And Valerie agreed in hopes of keeping her child. Oh, and she did, it's not like she had many options. She was already kicked out of her home. Yeah, she was already kicked out. She didn't have options. She's pregnant. She's only 17. What else was she really supposed to do at that point? Yeah, and who knows about if they have, like, shelters in that location? Because I know a lot of Amer- in America we have abuse shelters for mothers and women. Oh, that's, oh, I feel so bad for her. And the abuse only worsened from here on out. He started slapping her, then punching her, and then things progressed into choking. She even testified on stand that he held a gun to her head once and threatened to kill her. There were other instances of abuse too, like a broken nose, hitting her over the head with a hammer. And he even allegedly arranged for her to have lesbian encounters, which he would film. Oh my god. It just keeps getting worse and worse. I know, it's disgusting. And that's also how abuse normally goes. It starts slow and then just progresses. Oh, absolutely. And normally by the time it progresses, you're already kind of isolated. And so you don't have anyone to go to at that point. These predators are really good at doing that. It's because I, I think also if they see that they're getting away with one thing, well, let's try this next thing. And they get away with it and it just progresses. So putting a gun to her head, he gets away with it. Hitting her with a hammer, he gets away with it. And that's just teaching him, you can do all this shit. Yeah. And it's teaching her, he can do all this shit and there's nothing you can do about it. Yes. As a result um, from the abuse, she felt like a prisoner trapped inside the walls of her own home. She was completely alone. She wasn't allowed to talk to anyone. He would even have friends or relatives spy on her when she went grocery shopping, she would recall. And did she give birth around this time? This was after she gave birth, um, and still the pair went on to actually have three more children over the years of their marriage. So they had four children all together. That's heartbreaking, because you know she didn't think she had any options, and so it was all on him. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And Daniel Paulette eventually retired from his old job driving trucks and began prostituting Valerie Bacot. Oh my god! It literally just keeps getting worse and worse. And at this point, she was paralyzed by fear because she had experienced this since the time she was 12. Her thoughts were, Daniel owns me completely. I am an object that belongs to him. He can do whatever he wants to me. So when he started prostituting her, she went along with it. He would have her meet clients in the back of his van, which he decorated with a mattress and curtains. He would often spy on his wife and his clients and give her instructions using an earpiece. I'm, like, mortified right now. And as we mentioned earlier, she doesn't have many other options. Her mom kicked her out, so it's not like she can go to her mom for help. He isolated her so she doesn't have friends. It doesn't sound like she... And even if there were friends or resources, he's implanted in her head that he's gotten away with it and he'll keep getting away with it. I know. It's terrifying to think about. And on March 13th, she was raped by a client, and that was her breaking point. She was also worried that her 14-year-old daughter, Carlene, would soon become Daniel's next target. She knew that Daniel kept a pistol tucked away behind the car seats in case clients got violent. And she knew this was her chance to finally escape, not only for herself, but for her children. She retrieved the gun from its hiding place and shot him in the back of the neck. With the help of two of their children, his body was buried nearby. She was arrested a year later in 2017 and admitted to the killing. 
She was potentially facing life in prison for the murder, and her two children who helped dispose of the body received six months suspended sentences. Wow. And she did this not even just for herself. This was for her kids, too. Yeah. Because as you mentioned, it happened when she was, what, 12? Yeah, and her daughter was 14 at this time. So it wasn't bizarre to think that he would start the process with the daughter. Yeah, it's not crazy to think that at all. Um, And during her trial in June of 2021, her lawyers argued self-defense, but more specifically, they claimed this was a case of battered woman syndrome. Her lawyers argued that she was let down by everyone around her. She was a vulnerable teenager and was not only destroyed by years of violence, but above all, the indifference of society. Her lawyers felt that this case was a result of enormous failures in society and in the system that was meant to support victims' violence. Oh, I 100% agree, because they released him after three years to go live with her again, and that's, it just started this whole spiral. Exactly. That is insane. And they argued that Valerie attempted to get help from the police in the past. She was unable to escape Daniel's surveillance, but she asked her son and her daughter's then-boyfriend to go to the police on her behalf. They were turned away twice because the case didn't fall under their jurisdiction and because Valerie needed to come in to the police station herself. Yeah, how is she supposed to do that if she's being held prisoner? Like, if... Okay. Here's another example, Cap, for you. (laughs) If you're being held captive in your own home and you call me and you're like, I cannot leave my home or I'm going to be killed. And I go to the police, well, well, she has to come by. How? Yeah, exactly. How? How? And then court records indicate that there was never documentation of the children coming into the police station. And the officers even stated they had no memory of seeing them. Well, yeah, they're going to lie about it if they fucked up they're gonna lie about it and if they didn't do anything why would they create documentation about it exactly but they're stating that there was no documentation and they have no memory of her children coming in well, yeah because they're not going to write down children came in to claim this we turned them away and they're not going to claim they did that yeah exactly but her children still vow to this very day that they did go into the station but were turned away twice Throughout the trial and to this day, Valerie admits to shooting her husband because she was fearful that Daniel was going to target their 14-year-old daughter, Carlene. She states that he made sexually suggestive comments about her and he had asked her if their daughter was sexually active. Mm -hmm. I simply wanted to protect myself, protect my life, and the life of my children. In my eyes, nothing else mattered, Valerie said. That is... I want to cry and, like shake her hand at the same time and hug her because she loved these children and you can tell she fucking loved them. Yeah, she definitely did. I think that's part of why she put up with it for so long because that's even why she moved in with him and married him. She wanted to keep her unborn child. Yeah, and she didn't have any other options. This was, at the time, the best options for her kids. And then when she realized the best option was escaping, that's what she chose. Yes. And the prosecution, however, argued the murder was premeditated. They criticized her for not leaving her husband. Ah, victim blaming. Running away. And they made it a point to mention there were other solutions besides killing her husband. The defense painted the shooting of her husband as an act of survival. But technically, French law didn't have to allow her case to be seen that way. Legally, in order for it to be seen as self-defense, the threat must be simultaneous to the attack and the response must be proportionate. The prosecution did, however, agree that her judgment was altered by the circumstances and that she wasn't in a normal state of mind. This is all so complex. 
Still, activists supported Valerie. They agreed with her lawyers and felt there was a lack of support in place for, uh, for victims of incest and domestic violence in France. Instead of bringing care to victims of incense, a crime that impacts lives forever and leaves mental and physical scars, they wait for the victim to ask for help, although oftentimes they are too vulnerable to ask for the help they need. And then when they do, they're turned away. That can happen too, of course. And then a petition even went around supporting Valerie's cause, and it collected over 700,000 signatures. Ultimately, she was sentenced with four years jail time, three of which were suspended but released because she was given credit for the year she served awaiting trial. Valerie fainted in court due to shock after hearing the sentence. Oh, that makes me... Oh! I've, yeah. I mean, she was... Because she, she admitted it, so she was probably expecting yeah, life in prison. Yeah, she was probably expecting it. And then to hear that she had so many supporters and people like, no, this isn't your fault. Like Exactly. It's wild how much support she got can i just do a quick side note yeah um i will not personally uh what am i looking for i will not personally tolerate any victim blaming on our instagram or social medias so if we have people coming in and commenting and blaming the victim or saying they don't believe a story because the victim should have done x y and z i'm not going to tolerate it yes i just want to agree there's too many cases of victim blaming and we're here for entertainment and education purposes. We don't want to spread victim blaming or spread that horrible mindset. I also think we, I think Kat would agree that we're going to be linking some resources for those who are in domestic relationships. Oh yeah, 100%. Because sometimes even just those resources being linked to one podcast can help someone. So we will be linking those. And I just wanted to say absolutely no tolerating for victim blaming. I agree. Um, and then I was talking about how she fainted in court, right? Okay. After nearly two decades of abuse, she was finally able to leave the court a free woman. A loud applause broke out around the courtroom. I want to applaud right now. Like, I know. I'm going to, like, cheer. Her lawyer said, for me, it's an immense victory that the woman is going back to her children tonight, and I'm very moved. Her goal was that the defense of battered women syndrome be as accepted in France as it is in Canada. The prosecutor even said it was important that she was found guilty but allowed to walk free. He said a criminal court stands for civilized values foremost, among which is the protection of life. If people take justice into their own hands, then everybody is at war with everybody else. A few months after proceedings in February of 2021, a national reckoning about incest in France and legislative changes were made, including outlawing sex with children under the age of 15 and making incest when the victim is under 18 a crime of rape. So nothing about over 18, but at least that's a step in the right direction. Yes, definitely a step in the right direction. And I mean, what you said about if everyone took... uh, justice into their own hands everyone would be fighting with everyone i do agree with that i feel like this is just important because she was ignored by so many people and society as a whole that's why she had to, i mean she was basically forced to take into her own hands yeah I, she felt like she had no other choice she genuinely felt like she had no choice and she just wanted to protect her children and herself valerie was relieved that she was released and able to go back home to her family, but she did say, I am not only a victim. I killed him. It is only normal that I should be punished. But if my sentence is heavy, that will mean to me that he had the right to behave the way he behaved with me. 
I want to, like, cheer and celebrate. She is so fucking kick-ass. I know. Because not only did she, like, say, yes, I did it. I deserve the punishment, and I deserve to be, you know, mm-hmm. there, there are going to be consequences to my actions, but if this is such a heavy punishment, it just shows me and anyone else in domestic relationships that what he did was justified. Exactly. So I'm proud of her for standing up for herself, but I am very saddened that it had to get to the point that it did. And I mean, from if this is a real story, it sounds like it did motivate France to make some of those laws and changes. So it's horrendous that she had to go through it, but at least some good came from it. I agree. All right, so what are we going to call that one? I don't know. Well, you're the one who normally names my stories. I know, but there wasn't anything like, I don't know. Stepfather I... turned husband? <laughs> See, because that feels so wrong. You I know, know what it I mean? does feel wrong. Because the other, it's like parrot murder or, yeah. you know, cream pie. But this no, one... cream pie. Why would you say that? I'm never letting it go. But, like, this one, it's just all around bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. It did have a happy ending. It did. Well, how about gun to the neck? Gun to the neck. Okay. Sounds fair? Sounds fair. All right. So, I think that one, for right now, is real. Okay. Interesting. Now you're making me second (laughs) guess myself, dude. (laughs) That's illegal. Well, Ash thinks that story is real, and we're just going to move on to the next one and see what Ash thinks about that and what you guys think. Ash is giving me the shifty eye. <laughs> well, now I'm second-guessing myself. I'm like, that one for sure is real. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Moving on. Um, so we're going to go on to our next story now. This is the story of Christine Barlow. Christine grew up in a stable cookie-cutter family. And she had a very normal childhood. She grew what up... What kind of cookie cutter? I'm getting to that. Like a cat cookie cutter? Like a cat cookie cutter? No, yeah. like just like very basic. Right, so just a basic cookie cutter? Yeah. And she grew up in a family of four. She had two loving parents, an older brother, and a dog. She had a lot of friends, and she was known to be a social butterfly. Christine was everyone's friend in their small town of Levittown, Pennsylvania. When Christine was about 15 years old in 1995, the family had to relocate. Her father, Ken Cooper, took a new job in L.A. when the tax firm he was working for opened a new location there. Cat. What kind of dog was it? A German Shepherd. Okay. Just just last time your story, I asked you what dog it was, and you panicked. <laughs> I am not panicking. German Shepherd. Okay. Okay. Yep, so. it was a German Shepherd. Did they take the dog when they moved? They did take the dog when they moved. Good. Okay. Anyway, back on track. Tax firm. <laughs> yeah, he worked for a tax firm, which was opening up a new location in Los Angeles, and they asked him to run the new branch. He was hesitant because he was worried about how this move would affect his family, but it was a great opportunity for him, so he accepted the job. Christine had a much more difficult time adjusting than they thought she would. Her mother believes it's because they moved right as her adolescence stage was starting. The adolescent stage is an important time for a young developing mind. Around this age, teenagers start developing their own personality, their own style, and they normally start to value their friendships a lot more. The problem was, in this new town, Christine didn't have any friends, at least not at first. Eventually, she started hanging out with some of her peers, but they were not the crowd her parents approved of. The people she hung out with were known for getting into trouble. They would sneak out, smoke, drink, steal, and they were even caught spray-painting some of the buildings nearby in the past. 
Damn, that just describes you to a T. I know, it's kind of scary. Wow. Are you friends with her? No. <laughs> but I don't live in Los Angeles. But you do smoke, drink, and spray paint. I do all those things. Except I don't think I spray paint. Do I spray paint? <laughs> Why are you asking me? Do you I not know, know you're yourself? You're making me question myself. Gaslighting for the win. <laughs> her parents tried to discuss the type of friends that Christine was making, but she didn't want to hear it. Them talking to her seemed to push her even closer towards these unruly characters, as her mother and father often call them. Unruly? Yeah. Okay. They did not like her friends. Well, I figure. Just unruly is a weird way to describe people, right? I know. But like, mischievous? Yeah, that's probably a better word. Like, I don't... That's how they describe them. Okay, okay. <laughs> Her friends would often purchase alcohol and drugs from a 22-year-old named Jeff Bode. Christine... I thought you were going to say Jeffrey Bezos. <laughs> no. <laughs> Christine and her friends would sometimes hang out with Jeff while they partook in the alcohol and drugs he provided them. Christine and Jeff's bond grew, and the two of them started hanging out alone. Then the two began dating. And how old was he? 22. And how old was she? So she was... 15. Oh. Well, this was after she moved, so she may have been 16 by now. But she was like 15 to 16. Still, ugh. Yeah. Not a good match at all. No, but predators be predators. Predators do be predators. As Christine and Jeff's relationship progressed, all of her other relationships started to falter. She spent nearly every waking minute with him. She would miss school to be with him. She would sneak out of her parents' house to be with him. She would stay out longer than she was supposed to. Finally, her parents tried to have another intervention about the relationship, but it didn't work. Christine did admit that she missed her friends occasionally, but Jeff needed her more. She told them he would be upset if she wasn't around and she wanted to be there for him. Her parents tried to explain <laughs> that a relationship shouldn't put that much pressure on her and that she should still make time for school, her family, and her friends. But as every teenager, this just pissed Christine off more and pushed her closer into his arms. Uh. I know, disgusting. By 1996, she had already dropped out of school at 16 years old. Then by 17, she was already pregnant with his child. What is it with the 17-year-olds again? I was just thinking that. I mean, it's a good way for these predators to get them trapped. Yeah, I think that's part of it. They just want more control, and that gives them more control. Yeah, because they're trapped. That's what it is. It's it's not a child to them. It's a way to trap them. What nobody realized at the time was the amount of abuse going on behind the scenes. They wouldn't realize that until decades later when Christine faced charges for first-degree homicide after neighbors heard a gunshot coming from their residence. A neighborhood screaming coming from the Barlow household on June 21st of 2018. The neighbor Marlene Jenkins said that she knew it was around 5 a.m. because she was getting ready for work at the time. She originally didn't call the police and carried out with her morning routine, but the screaming persisted for another hour and a half. As she started her car to leave for work, she heard two loud bangs coming from their house. 
which would be scary. Imagine like you're just starting your car and you hear two loud bangs. I'd probably think it was my car at first. Like I'd panic. Well, yeah, because I, I, when I listen to podcasts, they always say that sometimes gunshots are what you think they would be or what they would sound like. It does sound like bangs. So yeah. I can definitely understand the car. It's weird to me that the, the screaming went on for hours and she didn't bother to call the police. I know. That's for a little a bit weird. But we hear that happen a lot. Yeah, it's the bystander effect where someone else did it or someone's going to do it or it's not my business. Yeah. But if it's going on for hours, like, I feel like that's a big red flag. Definitely a huge red flag. But, you know, I, you never know until you're in that situation. Yep. We always say it and it is true. <laughs> but um, She thought what she heard was guns, gunshots, so after she heard the bang, she immediately called 911. She frantically told the 911 operator, please help my neighbor, I think she has been shot. She has been shot, she said. So when police arrived on scene expecting to find Christine injured, they were shocked to find Jeff shot twice in the head in front of the kitchen sink and Christine crying hysterically, hovering over him. How sad is it that people just assume it's the wife? You know I know. What I mean? That was just her first assumption. Like, it's normal. It's, like, normalized in society that men will kill the women in domestic relationships. I know. It's crazy to think that. And I think it's crazy that her neighbor was just like, she has been shot. She just assumed it was Christine. Yeah, because it, that's... She wasn't even in the house. She was just like, nope, it has to be Christine. Because that's normalized is the man killing the woman. Even if it happens both ways, it's so common that everyone just assumes it's the woman that's I think killed. it's because men are seen to be more aggressive, really. That's true. When women kill, it tends to be more, like, quiet and discreet. Yeah. The police still investigated the scene, even though it was clear what had happened, and they knew exactly who pulled the trigger. I mean, she even confessed to the officers. She said that she had been abused for years at the hands of Jeff and that she snapped. Forensics confirmed that she pulled the trigger using gunshot residue. They also found her fingerprints on the gun, and by analyzing the blood splatter at the scene, they were able to confirm she was the shooter. Her court hearing was held about two years later. Her lawyers argued self-defense. They stated that she was abused for decades without any help. Christine cried during her court hearing, stating that she felt trapped and she didn't have another way out. She was criticized for not leaving him sooner, and she said, That would have been the smart choice, but you won't understand my reasoning unless you've been in the situation. He owned me. He controlled my life, and I had no way out. I didn't graduate high school. I don't have any work experience, and I have a child to take care of. And he would have killed me if I tried to leave. Yeah, that's that's the case in a lot of those abusive relationships. Yeah, and I think the no work experience, too, I never thought about it that way, but that is definitely a form of control because she's relying on him for money and stability. She can't even work on her own. Yeah, which is a form of abuse in its own, is taking care of all the finances and keeping you trapped. Because she could get a minimum wage job or start working like at McDonald's, but that's not going to be enough to... Live on her own and support a child. Right, exactly. So if she wanted to survive with her child, the best option would be to stay with him. She admitted to the jury that she even thought about killing herself, but she didn't want to leave their baby Zane alone with Jeff. She told them stories about how she was kicked, choked, hit, and even raped by Jeff on several instances. There was one story she recalled on the stand where the two of them went to the grocery store together, and Jeff thought she was flirting with the cashier. When they got home, he shoved her onto the floor and kicked her repeatedly in the stomach to make sure nobody would see visible marks. Oh, 
Yeah, disgusting. I can't believe that he would, like, because I feel like then you can't even say it's, like, a fit of rage or passion because he literally kicked her in the stomach on purpose because he didn't want marks on her face. Yeah. No, I, and not that a fit of rage is an excuse for oh, it. Oh, it's never an excuse. But, but this is definitely more thought out yes. and planned. Um, her lawyers brought in old medical records of previous injuries and linked them to abuse. Although at the time of the injuries, she told the doctors they were from accidental falls. Well, she yeah, would chuckle like a... and tell them that she was accident prone, but the doctors always suspected something was going on. Well, yeah, because she was a child. If she admits it, again, that risks her home, her income, everything. Yeah, literally everything is on the line. Uh, the neighbor who called 911, Marlene, testified that the reason she thought it was Christine who was shot that morning is because she had heard many of their arguments in the past. She claimed that she knew what kind of man Jeff was and that she often caught glimpses of it. She told the court that her biggest regret is that she never stepped in to help sooner. Oh, that makes me sad. It, it really is the bystander effect where you don't know what's fully going on and you assume it's not your business or someone yeah. else called the police. Plus, I or... think to a degree it is normal for couples to fight and maybe for a while she thought it was just them, like, fighting. She Maybe she had suspicions but she didn't want to call the police and be wrong. Right, I and, yeah, I, I get what you mean. And she was trying to rationalize it, like, they're just a couple bickering, even if it does go on for hours and it's screaming matches. Yeah, and I also think that's part of why she waited so long until she heard the bangs. Because it's, yeah. Because she heard them fighting before. Yeah, and it, it never escalated to loud bangs, so. Mm. I, I never want to, like, blame neighbors yeah. for not taking action. It's just interesting to me that you would hear them fight for hours and not take action. But it's not ever their fault. I know, it's, it's not their fault, but it's just weird to think about. But again, we never know until we're in that, that place. But it's just crazy how often we hear that in true crime stories. Oh, absolutely. And it reminds me of the one case where there was, like, several apartment buildings. And, like, I think there was, like, I don't remember the number, but there was, like, 20 people around that heard and saw this woman being murdered. And no one called the police because they assumed someone else did. I know. It's called the bystander effect. And she could have survived if someone called the police because the murderer left from her screams and then came back to finish the job. So, I mean... In my eyes, it's better safe than sorry. It's better for the police to come and there's nothing wrong or there was X, Y, and Z. But it is also a so... It's such a sensitive situation because if she had called the police, how angry would he have been? Yeah. Would he have killed her? So I just wanted to say I'm not trying to victim blame the neighbor. It's just really interesting to me. It is very interesting. Um, her lawyers worked hard to prove that she was abused mentally and physically. They stated that she was subjected to years of coercive control. They had her recount tales of her abuse. They had witnesses come forward, including a psychiatrist whom they had evaluate her. The psychiatrist found that Christine was suffering from severe post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. The prosecution tried to prove that the murder wasn't an act of self-defense by pointing out the fact that she shot him in the back of the head twice. They said if it was truly an act of self-defense, he would have shot while facing her. Right, but what if he was turned away to grab a knife or something? Exactly. Like, you, you weren't there. You don't know. Because if he's turning away to grab a knife, you're not going to wait for him to turn around and face you. You know what I mean? Exactly. You're going to act. 
The psychiatrist who evaluated her, Dr. Megan Cadell, stated that she this wasn't necessarily true. She said that someone suffering from severe post-traumatic stress disorder and was living under the constant fear that even a minor incident that... <laughs> Wait, oh my gosh. She said that someone suffering from severe post-traumatic stress disorder and someone living under constant fear like that could be triggered by even a minor incident. Which makes sense because PTSD is the... I don't know how to describe it because I've never experienced it, but you get those flashbacks or you get those thoughts and it's... Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, he could have just been washing the dishes and went to grab a knife to clean, but in her mind... He's grabbing a knife. You exactly. Know? Exactly. Someone who's been abused like that, like, they're going to be scared. And it could even be a minimal thing that, like, sets them off. And I kind of think of, like, um, you know that that metaphor about, like, the cup overfilling? Sometimes it's that last little drop that just, like, Causes overfills it. it. So it's just everything piling up. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I can't blame her for reacting that way. Again, as... The first case, there are consequences to every action, whether or not you're, you know, abused in that situation. But you got you snap at one point. Yeah. Um, she testified under oath the shooting wasn't premeditated. She said that the two of them were in a disagreement and he grabbed her by the throat and squeezed her so hard she thought she was going to faint. He then released her and said, don't you ever disrespect me again. Then she went into the bedroom, grabbed his gun from the nightstand, and shot him twice in the head while he was washing his hands at the kitchen sink because she needed the nightmare of a marriage to be over, and she didn't see another out. That makes me so sad. Ultimately, the jury did find her guilty of manslaughter, but not of first-degree murder. Ooh, that's interesting. I know. I didn't expect them. Yeah. Manslaughter. Yeah. Because they're saying that um, it's kind of like vehicular manslaughter. Mm -hmm. Like she did kill him, but it wasn't thought out or planned. Yeah, and it she didn't go out intending to kill him, I suppose. Yes. That, so that's interesting. The jury ended up finding her guilty of manslaughter, but not of first-degree murder. The judge ended up sentencing her for three to six years for manslaughter, which is the minimum sentence in Los Angeles where the couple lived. Many people showed support for her. Petitions went out online asking for her release, and many activists started using the free Christine hashtag. They did their part to help free her and spread word about her case. Her case has been used as an example of how the justice system needs to help women before it's too late. Many people feel like this could have been avoided if someone had helped out sooner. And they do use this as a case of, like, the Me Too movement and mm -hmm. everything like that. I... These situations are so tricky. I know, because I feel like nobody deserves to be murdered, but you also have to see, like, where, like in that mindset, like... Right, the PTSD the and PTSD. the years of abuse and the piling up. So I, I, I do agree the lesser sentences are needed mm -hmm. because, yeah, the system in a way did fail her. There was no support or help for her. And it's just become the last few years, so it's really been a movement for these women yeah. That's to why get I feel out. like all these stories, too, were more recent than some of the other ones I've discussed, just because now women are finally coming out and coming forward. And this case has been used as an example, and activists have even used this case to try and, like, get more support for victims instead of having it result to this. Because really, they both could have been saved. If someone Absolutely. stepped in sooner, no, neither one of them 
had to die, you know? Yeah. And even her, like, yeah, she got a minimum sentence, but this is still going to affect her life forever. Oh, absolutely. And quick note, we are aware men get abused, too. If you are yes. a man who's abused, absolutely speak yes. out. We will I'm have sorry I links. keep saying women. But... It's, it's just because it's way more often for women to be abused. Yes. If you think about it, it's society pushing down women and pointing out they're weaker, so it's just easier for men to prey on women. There are absolutely men and non-binary people who do get abused. It's just women is much more common. So if you are a man who does get abused, I understand that and we do see you. Please reach out for help. Yes, we see all of you. And I hate that a lot of the time the Me Too movement will put down men who try and speak out about their abuse. Yeah, no movement is perfect. No, I just hope it improves so we can get men involved in it too. Um... It's just so hard because most of the abuse, I shouldn't say most, a lot of the abuse is for with, with women. Mm-hmm. Wow, with women. Yeah, and even Christine um, is working on writing a book right now to tell her story and to get more awareness. Well, that's an interesting one. So we have shot to the neck and shot to the head. Yes. Okay, perfect. I think that one's fake. Why? I don't want to give it away yet. I think you have a tell. I have a tell? I think. I don't think I have a tell. So I, for now, I think that one's fake. But we'll I want to hear the last one. We'll see, Ash. We will see. Stop making me... Stop gaslighting me to second-guess myself, Kat. We will see. <laughs> we'll move on to the next story. What did you want to call that last one, though, Ash? I already named it. We had the shot to the neck and shot to the head. Oh, yes. I remember that now. Brilliant. Boom. Anyway, on to our next story. Um, The state originally planned on charging Rachel Bellison with deliberate homicide homicide after she shot and killed her ex-husband. What was her name? Rachel Bellison. Okay. But she was ultimately cleared of all charges without prejudice in May of 2021. And this is her story and why she was cleared of charges. Okay. Are you ready? I hope I'm ready. My butt's clenched and let's go. <laughs> Rachel Bellison didn't have the best home life. Growing up, she bounced from apartment to apartment in the state of Washington. She remembers being abused when she was growing up like many teenagers. Once she was 15 years old and moved into Levittown, Washington, she hit a very rebellious stage. Kind of like our last stories. Although due to the abuse that she suffered and her deteriorated mental state, that was amplified tenfold. She said, I think the abuse killed something inside of me. I felt so unlovable and worthless. Oh, no no one should have to feel like that. I know. It's really depressing. I don't think anyone should feel like that. I feel like everyone has worth and value, and it just makes me so sad when people feel that way or oh. someone makes them feel that way. 100%. Everyone is worth something. Everyone is valued and loved. And to be made feel... To be... To feel that way is just hard. Definitely. Coincidentally, this is when she met Jacob... A local 23-year-old drug dealer who Oh my god, what are these drug dealers? Drug dealers are shady, you guys. Don't date them. Don't date a drug dealer. Don't date Don't do it. And don't date an older man. Why would you say that? (laughs) I'm not a drug dealer. Why would you say that? Wow, your reaction time, really. (laughs) Wow. No, you can date Kat. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so no drug dealers, no older men. Yes, please. 
Maybe. Okay. Fair. Probably not, though. See, that was your words, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> but not for that reason. I'm not a drug dealer. Are you sure? Yes, I have coworkers who listen to this. Stop. Oh, not. This is a bit. This is a bit. Cat's not a drug dealer. <laughs> a wink. I'm kidding. <laughs> The two became close, and Rachel never had friends before, so this was all brand new to her. He would take her snowboarding in the Cascade Mountains. He introduced her to Bob Marley. They smoked pot together. Rachel- Bob Marley? Yeah, Bob Marley. Like, you're just going to breeze over that? I am. Like, the famous Bob Marley? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, she he introduced her to his music, not, like, literally him. Oh! Okay, thank you. <laughs> that, that clarifies it. I thought it. that was, um... That was obvious. But. No, you just said introduced to Bob Marley, so I thought, like, they shook hands with Bob Marley, like, yes, yeah, my old bud. <laughs> no. Okay, okay. Rachel recalls a road trip where they held hands the entire ride to Seattle to meet his extended family. She was elated to finally have the attention of someone who cared about her. The weekend before her 16th birthday, they were driving to a music festival festival on the Canadian border, and they had sex for the very first time. And how old were they at this point? She was, she was probably about 16 or 17. All these youngins. It's because they're, yeah, they can be taken advantage of. If you're 16, my sister who listens, don't date older men. Definitely not. Like, Please don't. Date other teens to experiment and have fun, you know? But, ew. Yeah, definitely ew. I know, I can feel my sister And it's about to cringing. get more gross. Oh. Because, like all of her other stories, a few weeks later she found out she was pregnant. Everyone's getting pregnant. I had just realized this now. At 17? Yes. Or was she 16? I think she was 16 or 17, yeah. So, 17? Because the, the two had been hanging out for a while at this point. Did we miss the memo? Should we have gotten knocked up at 17? Probably not. I was a lesbian at 17, so. That'd be very difficult <laughs> for you. <laughs> Do you have a secret child I should know about? No. All no. these stories with 17-year-old pregnancies. I just realized that. I didn't mean to do that. Sorry, guys. Is that the theme here? <laughs> no. Um, she left home to take care of the baby with Jacob after moving into a storage shed in his uncle's backyard that Jacob referred to as a studio apartment. By the way, guys, that is not a studio apartment. That man is lying to you, and he is probably a loser. (laughs) Nice addition of the loser. You know, I don't have anything else to say. That was perfect. (laughs) She started, after they moved in together, he started making comments about the way she looked. Um, He would become upset with her when she made eye contact with the men who came by to pick up weed. He would call her a whore. Um, Rachel remembers him calling her this on numerous occasions during this time period, and she was pregnant during this time with his child. But the two were having a baby together, so she was very embarrassed. She didn't want to talk to anyone about it, because I feel like at that point it's almost, like, too late. I don't want to use that word, because you can still get out, but in her mind it was too late. No, and again, as all the other stories, she was trapped, baby trapped. Like, yeah, she didn't want to... And these... These women were all so young that they didn't really know what love was supposed to look like. Or what life was supposed to be. They don't know how to get a job or work. I mean, they're still so young. I mean, my first job, 16, and even then I didn't really know what I was doing. So, and, oh, that makes me sad. And how are you supposed to work as a 17-year-old that's pregnant? 
Exactly. Like, what job is going to, this is sad, but what job is going to hire a 17-year-old that's pregnant? There's not a lot. Yeah. And even if you do get a job, it probably wouldn't be, like, the best one. Like you said earlier, it would probably be, like, a minimum wage job. No, not enough to support you and a child. Mm-hmm. And as these stories often go, eventually things progressed. Soon after their baby boy, who they named Orion, was born in 2000, Jacob started raping her one to two times a week. Ugh. I didn't want to have sex with him, but I did it anyway because I knew he wanted it and I didn't want to make him mad, she said. Which is so heartbreaking. You always can say no. Always say no if you don't want to. Like, even, Your body is sacred. Yeah, even if you're in the middle of sexy times, you can say no. Yeah. Like, it you're is, allowed to change your mind? You're allowed to say no? Yeah, it is your body. And your even choice. if he is your boyfriend or your husband, oh. if you're not in the mood, you're not in the mood. Absolutely. There are so many cases of rape in, like, established relationships because they assume that it's always consensual. No. Like... Your partner still has to give or get consent. Exactly. The following year, Rachel became pregnant again. At this point, Jacob rammed her into a wall when they crossed paths in the hallway. He once threw a beer bottle at her back when she was holding their baby Orion, which caused her to drop him. The baby was okay, though. Um, Then 10 days after her second son, Isaac, was born... Jacob raped her with such force that her C-section stretches, stitches stretched and oozed, and she endured severe trauma. Oh, my God. She was in pain. She was depressed, and she was suffering from postpartum depression on top of that. So she took a handful of pills. Um, it was more that I just wanted to go to sleep because I was so sleep-deprived and depressed, not so much that I wanted to die, she would say. I've been there. After being discharged from the hospital, she and Jacob moved into a duplex. He allowed her to work as a waitress at his aunt's diner. And I hate that, like, he allowed her. Like, no, you don't need his permission, girl. Well, and the fact that it was his aunt's diner so he could still have that control over her. Yeah. Because he probably could be like, I'll get you fired or blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no one can control your appearance, your body, your job, like, Definitely when, not. When you're a minor living with your parents, it's really hard. They shouldn't be able to, but there yeah. are cases. But I, I feel I don't want to turn this podcast into like PSA, but I just want to get it across. No, it's because okay. It's important. We do have young listeners. Yeah. I mean, our diet, our demographic is pretty wide. Yeah. So just I just want anyone to know. The physical and sexual violence finally seemed to be over. Although a few years later, in January of 2002. They got married and relocated to the area where they first met. They were unpacking boxes that were still scattered around the floor when Jacob wrapped his hands around her neck for the first time. Throughout the marriage, the violent stranglings and sexual assaults continued. Some nights on the drive from work, she would fantasize about crashing her car. But then she would remember her two children at home and she would pull herself together and continue driving. All of these... Abused moms looking out for their kids and breaks my heart. Yeah, mama bears for sure. Seriously. So fucking strong. In 2003, she caught Jacob cheating on her with a 15-year-old girl. The same age that she was when they first met on their shared couch. She packed her things and moved. She wanted a fresh start but was sucked back into the same nightmare. 
Jacob would show up begging for sex, he would follow her around town. In 2004, he was convicted of domestic violence after breaking into her home and dragging her outside by her hair. Oh my god. I'm assuming she took her two little boys with her, right? I'm getting to that. Um, But four months after the conviction, Rachel finally divorced him. But she didn't have a diploma or real work experience. She lost her home. She was evicted from her apartment. And she lost custody of her children. No! She got addicted to cocaine and found herself being abused by various other men as the cycle of abuse continued. One of her boyfriend's brothers actually slipped her the number to a domestic violence shelter during a barbecue. Oh, so at least someone was looking out. Yeah, someone looked out for her. Um, She actually stayed in that shelter for some time, then left for Montana, where her mother was living. It took a few years, but she mended their relationship, worked on staying sober, and graduated from the University of South Dakota with a degree in addiction studies. Holy shit, look at her go. Yeah, she really pulled her life back together. But I don't want to see how this ends, because it ends in murder. In 2021, she met Corey Bellison, a father of two on Match.com. They were married five months after their first date. Jesus. Yeah, just five months. Well, and then, she was probably longing for that relationship because that's all she really knew as a kid, right? Yeah. Like, and even after her and Jacob first broke up, she did go through a cycle of other boyfriends, but they were also abusive towards her. So... And when she met Corey, it was probably a relief. Well, yeah, and he had kids, which she could relate to on some level, even if she lost custody, which shouldn't have happened because the dad is fucking minors, but... Yeah, definitely, he should not have custody. But actually, at this point, Rachel and her sons moved in with Corey. (gasps) She's got her sons back. So she got her sons back. And by 2017, she took a job working at the Abbey Shelter, a shelter for domestic violence victims to seek refuge. Oh my god! Yes, I know, good for her. Um, She was working the phones, and she was able to use her story to connect with clients. Within a year, she was promoted to a shelter coordinator. She encouraged and inspired the victims to feel more like survivors. She would occasionally run into Jacob still on holidays or at their son's birthday parties, but she no longer felt afraid of him. What a bad bitch. Yeah, she even said she didn't think of herself anymore as a victim, and she thought of herself as a survivor because she had pushed past all of that. Look at her go. But while she was flourishing, Jacob's own world was crashing apart. After he moved to Montana, he was convicted of domestic violence against his new wife after pushing her to the ground and choking her. In the months before he was shot, he was accused of assaulting a family member twice by his then-girlfriend at the time. Yeah, so he was crushing his own world. Yes, definitely was. It's um, His then-girlfriend, Jasmine Saylor, even filed a restraining order against him. When he was served the papers, Jacob called and asked Rachel for advice on how to be a better person. At the time, she felt like he genuinely needed the help, and she tried to help him, but looking back, she realizes he was just sucking her back in. Yep, trying to manipulate her. Yeah, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Um, but on the morning of October 8th, 2002, Rachel received a call from Jacob, who heard a rumor about their son being bisexual. 
He thought he could quote unquote beat the gay out of him. Excuse me? I know. As someone who is a non binary bisexual, that's not how it works. Definitely not how it works, and not okay to think like that. No, again, if you're homophobic, we will block you. Yes, <laughs> and there's the no thing, tolerance for that. And the thing is, Rachel knew what he was capable of because she had a first hand look at how violent he could be throughout their marriage. So she ended up picking up Jacob so they could discuss their son's orientation together. As they drove, he directed her through a forest of trees down a dirt road to a fishing hole three quarters of a mile off the highway. Once they reached the secluded spot, Rachel parked and popped the trunk. She sat on the bumper as he paced back and forth ranting about how their son couldn't possibly be bisexual because his girlfriend had an awesome rack, quote. Does he not know the definition of bisexual? I guess not. You can love women with awesome racks, but also love dudes with awesome, yeah. (laughs) Awesome, yeah. (laughs) And Rachel was disgusted by his comment. Jacob stopped mid-pace, stared at her chest, and asked her if she got a boob job. What the She became increasingly nervous, and part of her wanted to run, but she didn't. Instead, she tried to steer the conversation back towards their son. Jacob continued to talk about her, this time bringing up her new husband and how happy they look together. And this is the guy with the two kids, right? Her husband is the guy with the two kids. This is her ex. Right, right. That's what I was just trying to clarify. I just wanted to make sure I was Mm -hmm. on the right track. Yeah, so he was talking about how happy her and her new husband were. Um, At this moment, she became more nervous and tried to send a text to her husband, but there was no service. Of course. Mm. Jacob darted towards her and whispered an apology, and Rachel was shocked. He had raped her many times, he had abused her, but he had never once apologized. Just another manipulative tactic, though, right? Yeah. And it scared her to her core because she thought he was going to kill her. She came to this conclusion because that would be the only reason that she could see him apologizing. Oh my god, yeah. He pushed her down onto her back. Rachel tried to scream, but not a sound came out. She caught a glimpse of the purple grip of her Glock shoved down between the seat and the center console of her car. She quickly grabbed her gun and pulled the trigger. Self-defense. Self-defense, for sure. And after that, she drove to a nearby gas station and immediately called 911 and confessed to the shooting. Police found scratches on her chest and her shirt was ripped from the altercation. But by the next morning, police had arrested her and took her to jail. That's just, like, this is probably one of the most, like, out of the other two, this is the most self-defense case. Like, where she had wounds on her chest. All of them were self-defense, just to say. But, like, this was the most evident, where she had wounds on her chest and her shirt was ripped and, oh my god. They told her that she was going to be charged with deliberate homicide, which is actually punishable by death in the state of Montana. Her heart sank, and she felt like she was being traumatized all over again. Yeah, she's being charged with his actions. Exactly. She even said that this was the second day in a row she felt like she was facing death. After she was charged, her attorney, Lance Jasper, assembled a crusading team of volunteer attorneys, detectives, researchers, and psychologists. He said that this would have costed her $1 million, but the case was pro bono. 
They interviewed Jacob's other victims, scoured for evidence, and staged a live reenactment of the shooting. Rachel's co-workers at the Abbey Shelter also joined the fight and mounted a campaign with the goal of putting public pressure on the Attorney General's office. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. And after several months, Jasper felt confident enough with everything he had collected for Rachel's case, so he actually sent his whole entire case to the prosecutors and told them they had a year to prosecute if they still wanted to. Damn, this man was like, she was ballsy. Right? Wow. Good for him, though. It just shows he was thorough and fucking confident. Yeah. He said if they didn't want to, after reading his case, he wanted them to file with prejudice. If a if charges are dismissed with prejudice, then they could never be tried for the murder. Good. But the state refused and filed to drop the case with prejudice. They were still going to drop the case, but if a case is dropped with prejudice, it means that she could be charged later down the line. Why? I think they thought maybe they'd collect more evidence eventually, and they just wanted that. But in Montana, there is no... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? There was no... What's the time period called? Statue of limitations. <laughs> there was no statue of limitations. You were looking on into my soul, trying to get me to figure it out, and I was. <laughs> yeah, but there's no statue of limitations on murder, so she could be charged at any point um, if they dropped the cases with prejudice. But Jasper said no. And he said that no other lawyer would probably turn down this deal, but he didn't want Rachel to live with the fear that Jacob was still controlling her life from beyond the grave. Well, yeah. I mean, because it could come back to her any time, right? Yeah. I wouldn't want that fear either. Good for him for sticking by her side. Yeah. He was a damn good lawyer. Um, The Abbey Shelter continued to press for the case to be dropped with prejudice, and ultimately it was. The shelter did feel conflicted using Rachel's status as an advocate, but they felt if they had the opportunity, they should use it. I can understand their hesitation, but I'm so glad they did. Yeah, me too. Um, Rachel believes that she is lucky that the charges were dropped. She said, I'm out because I'm white and middle class and have the privilege of working where I work. Had I been a different color, I probably would have gone to trial for murder and been found guilty and put in prison for the rest of my life. Damn, look at her being able to recognize her privilege, even in such a, you know... Such a humble way. Right, yeah. like, she was she was going to be charged for murder, and she was still like, I am privileged. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad she could recognize that, because it is the case if you're white cis, you're more likely to get off. Yeah, and I think, of course, having, like, so many... Her position as an advocate, she had so many resources that a lot of people don't have. Because we do hear of cases where women do kill their abusers and they are still charged with, like, the full extent of the law. Yeah. Um, But she was very privileged because she was an advocate and she had all these resources and all these people that were ready to, like, go and fight for her. I'm glad she was able to get off with her two kids and the two stepkids and husband. Yeah. I hope she's living a happy life. I hope hope she's real and living a happy life. Um, So I'm going to say that one's real. I think the middle one is still fake. What makes you say that? I don't want to give away my tell. On your fake stories, you tend to have a lot of weird random details. Like the last episode that you did where it was like all of the details about the drug and the mileage and the X, Y, and Z. I don't know. I just felt like that one had little weird 
details. I mean, they all had very weird details. Don't try and gaslight me out of my answer. I'm I'm just saying, are you sure? Because they all had weird details. I'm sticking with it, I mean, she had a purple Glock. Do you know what my favorite color is? Fuck you. Um, that one's gonna be named Purple Glock, though. Purple Glock. (laughs) I'm winning, okay? Are you? I am, two to one. But are you sure you're winning? Yes. Stop trying to what gaslight you... me. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, that's what I'm sticking to. Let us know what you guys think on our Instagram and Twitter. Do you want to add anything, Kat? I don't have anything to add. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Follow us on Spotify, and we'll see you later. Thank you.